Good afternoon. Uh, this is Iris Litt for the Emeriti Council, and I'm delighted to invite you to what was billed appropriately as the much anticipated Abernathy Lecture that's going to be delivered shortly um, by Professor Lubert Stryer. And before we get to the main feature, I just wanted to uh, share with you uh, the, the um, upcoming longevity lecture series speaker that we will present to you on March 17th, and that is Professor uh, Deborah Cato, who will be talking about a very important issue, and her talk is entitled Balanced Living, the Key to Fall Prevention. Um, so we look forward to seeing you there as well. Uh, but now to uh, get to the main feature of this afternoon, I wanted to uh, introduce the introducer, who was uh, Professor Peter Kim, and uh, Dr. Kim is the Virginia and D.K. Ludwig Professor of Biochemistry here at Stanford and Institute Scholar at Stanford's ChemH, as well as Lead Investigator of the Infectious Disease Initiative at Chan Zuckerberg um, BioHub. But most importantly, he's a longtime friend as well as colleague of our guest speaker, and he will now have the pleasure of introducing him to us all. Thank you, Iris. It's a great honor for me to introduce today's David B. Abernethy lecture, Professor Lubert Stryer. Before I met Lubert, I, like many other students around the world, knew who Lubert Stryer was because his biochemistry textbook was a staple at Cornell, where I was an undergraduate, and this was the book. I first met Lubert in person when I was a first-year medical student here at Stanford, and he visited the lab course on histology that I was taking. He was carrying a manila folder with a huge stack of paper inside. And after asking us questions about the adipocytes that we were looking at under the microscope, he proceeded to put the folder down, flip to a page in the middle of, the, of this pile, and add notes to what I learned then was the draft of the second version of his book. <laughs> Thus, my first personal introduction to Lubert Stryer was observing him as a student who was the consummate teacher. Subsequently, for a decade at MIT, I taught introductory biochemistry to approximately 200 undergraduates each year. I used the Red Book. We were up to edition four by then. And since I was teaching the course, I actually had to read the book several times. This made me aware of how deeply incisive Lubert's writing was and how elegantly he presented the key concepts that are central to understanding biochemistry. And very importantly, the multicolor graphic figures in this book jump out at you and teach beautifully. As you will see, Lubert is a very visual person. When I was an assistant professor at MIT, I received a Pew Scholarship 
which came with the fringe benefit of annual meetings at very nice resorts in Costa Rica, Cozumel, and the like. My wife, Catherine, and I used these meetings as an annual vacation with our young family. But the best fringe benefit of being a Pew Scholar was that Lubert was on the Pew Advisory Board. So he and his wife, Andrea, would attend these meetings as well. And our friendship blossomed. Well, it's been wonderful for Catherine and me to renew our bond with the Stryers following our return to Stanford. Lubert Stryer was born in Tianjin, China in 1938 and lived in Shanghai during World War II. He immigrated to the US when he was 10 years old, received his BS degree at the University of Chicago and his MD degree at Harvard. As a medical student at Harvard, he did research with Elkin Blout, one of the key pioneers of biophysical chemistry. But Lubert decided in medical school that research was his true calling. So upon graduation, instead of a clinical internship, he went to the physics department at Harvard to work with Edward Purcell and then did postdoctoral research at the MRC in Cambridge, working with John Kendrew, who won the Nobel Prize with Max Perutz for their work determining the structures of myoglobin and hemoglobin. After just two years, in 1963, Arthur Kornberg re recruited Lubert to join the biochemistry department at Stanford Medical School. He moved to Yale in 1969, but was recruited back to Stanford seven years later as the Windsor Professor of Cell Biology. Lubert has made huge scientific contributions. One is the development of a spectroscopic ruler. He's gonna talk about this in his lecture. I will simply state that the applications of fluorescence energy, resonance energy transfer or FRET have expanded tremendously and it is now a ubiquitous tool in biology. Lubert also discovered how light acting on a protein in the eye triggers a signal in neurons that ultimately leads to a visual image in the brain. He's also gonna talk about this in his lecture. So I will simply note that the salient feature of this mechanism is now known to operate not only in vision, but in many other systems, including smell, taste, hormone action, immune system regulation, inflammation, and neurotransmission. Another huge contribution started during his 1989 leave of absence from Stanford to help found Affimax and later Affymetrics in Palo Alto. There, Lubert played a seminal role in inventing a new method for chemically synthesizing vast numbers of compounds in spatially addressable locations on a chip with just a small number of steps. The method combined solid state chemistry, photolabile protecting groups, photolithography, and you guessed it, light. Though this light-directed method for generating microarrays led to a revolution in genetic analyses through the creation of the DNA gene chip, which contained millions of different DNA sequence on a thumbnail size support. Lubert has won many prestigious awards and was elected to the National Academy of Sciences in 1984. In 2006, he received the nation's highest scientific honor, the National Medal of Science. The citation read, quote, for his pioneering application of fluorescence spectroscopy 
and particularly fluorescence resonance energy transfer to the analysis of biological macromolecules. He elucidated the biochemical basis of signal transduction in vision and pioneered the development of high density microarrays for genetic analysis, gene chips. His influential biochemistry textbook has influenced and inspired millions of students. Lubert, I know that I speak for so many people when I say thank you for being such an inspiring individual and for your friendship and mentorship. We look forward to your lecture entitled Light and Life. Well, I'd like to express my deep appreciation to Iris Litt, Susan Schofield, and their colleagues on the Stanford Emerdi Council for inviting me to present a David B. Abernathy lecture. It's good to have this opportunity to share with you some reflections uh, about my personal and scientific life. And thank you, Peter, for your very kind and warm words. And it's been a great privilege, one of the great privileges of my life, to have known you since you were a student in the biochemistry department in 1975, and a friendship and scientific interactions that uh, have thrived over uh, quite a few decades and to have you back at, at Stanford. My father was born in Germany, and at a young age, he loved international travel and he loved international trade. And he went to the Far East and set up an export-import business. My mother, Eva, uh, moved from Russia. She was born in Russia. She moved from Russia to Harbin, a thriving uh, city in northeastern China. My dad was traveling in the Far East on business, and he happened to be in Harbin. They got together, fell in love, got married very quickly, and, uh, and, and, uh, and then uh, a couple of years later, I was born in Tianjin in 1938. I, uh, we moved from Tianjin to Shanghai in 1939. We moved to the French concession to a, um, a very pleasant apartment on a tree-lined avenue that is still a nice place. At the time, uh, it was governed by the French uh, Consul General. Uh, adjacent to the French concession uh, was the international concession, which was run by the United States and, and Britain. But other parts of Shanghai were already in, uh, under Japanese military control. Came Pearl Harbor Day, uh, December 7, 1941, and the Japanese military, the troops, uh, walked across uh, into the international areas. Now, our area, the, um, the uh, French concession, uh, remained under French civilian control because the Vichy government uh, was collaborating with uh, the Axis powers, with Germany and with Japan. And um, so we were in, um, in a place where we had the Japanese military there and we had the French civil government, the Vichy government. And what um, uh, across the street, um, there was a large, apart a large apartment house. And one of my earliest memories was of uh, Japanese troops garrisoned there. 
And uh, each day they would march uh, a lockstep, uh, bayoneted, helmeted. And uh, it was a scary scene for a child and, and more than for a child. Uh, we were never injured by them. We were never threatened by them, but their presence was, was ominous. And um, the compounded was that the Germans were putting pressure on the Japanese to exterminate the Jews in Shanghai and elsewhere in China. Uh, my, my dad had uh, uh, lost his German citizenship in 1935 because uh, uh, he was Jewish. My mother relinquished her Soviet uh, citizenship. We were stateless. And so we were not interned by the Japanese. We slipped between the cracks. My aunt, uh, my uncle, who was a US citizen, my aunt were interned uh, by the Japanese in, in Northern China. Uh, but we were, we were left alone. And uh, miraculously, the, um, we were also permitted to stay in the French concession. Uh, in, in about 1943, the Japanese military issued a proclamation uh, stating that uh, uh, the um, uh, stateless refugees would have to live in an area called Hankyu that, that was a, a very crowded ghetto and it was a very tough life there. Uh, but fortunately, we're allowed to stay in a, under reasonably comfortable circumstances in the French concession. But that was very lucky that um, the, the, the Vichy were, I have a friend, a French friend, uh, who was uh, being um, hounded uh, by the Vichy government trying to capture him and his family in southern France. And here we were in Shanghai, well known to the French gendarmerie, and we were just left alone. Those are the strokes of a fortune. Um, we, uh, during the war, of course, the schools, uh, the uh, Western schools were, were closed, uh, but my parents found uh, two Danish ladies uh, who ran a, a um, one apartment school. Uh, they had about, they tutored about 12 students. And I vividly recall it. I was taken there when I was five years old. Um, it was about a 25 minute walk from uh, our home. And uh, th their educational strategy was, was wonderful. Uh, it was to have students teach each other. So uh, I would teach uh, multiplication to a student who was uh, a little less advanced, and I would learn division from a student who um, was a bit more advanced. And it was then that I, I realized what, what this is really fun to teach and what a great way to learn. And it profoundly influenced me. And so much of what I've done since then involves that interplay of research and teaching. I wish I had remembered the names of those two wonderful Danish ladies, uh, but they profoundly influenced me and it's one of the most fortunate things um, that happened to me. And all of this in uh, some dark days of World War II. My dad's export import business, of course, essentially came to an end. There was a small bit of business within China. Fortunately, he had stashed away quite a few US dollars and he would, um, pull one or two out, uh, one or two dollars went a long ways, uh, put them between his feet and socks, and uh, on a very dangerous mission, go out to find a money changer to convert to local currency. Uh, if he was found, uh, he would have been shot by the Japanese. We 
around 1944, um, uh, bombing in earnest started. The, the US Air Force uh, started targeting uh, uh, Japanese military targets. Uh, they would often come flying over our area, but fortunately their aim was very good. Our area was a civilian area and um, no bombs directly struck our area, though there was some uh, shrapnel. Um, but I recall vividly uh, with my dad going out on the back porch and seeing the B-29 silver silhouetted on the uh, blue sky. And very quietly, we, we cheered them on and before taking shelter. And um, at night, we, uh, my, my dad, uh, our um, short wave on our radio was, was cut by the, uh, the Japanese. They controlled uh, all the news, but we learned what was going on uh, in the world to some extent. Uh, my dad fashioned an antenna and we were able to pull in uh, the armed forces uh, radio station from Chongqing, which was in allied hands uh, many miles away. And there we learned about FDR's death. We learned about uh, victory in Europe, um, uh, the end of the war in Europe. And then we learned about a new, very powerful bomb striking uh, Nagasaki and Hiroshima. And there was an eerie quiet for the next few days. And then suddenly one night, um, all the phones started ringing. And um, uh, the word was that the war was over, uh, Japan surrendered. And uh, this was VJ Day. It was also my mother's birthday. It was a great birthday gift to her. And so the, the, long, um, the long war period, seemed long, um, came to an end. Uh, I, I was struck during the war that my, my dad showed me a photo of the US flag and said to me, this is gonna be your, your country. And he said it with great confidence. Uh, he was absolutely sure that the war would end well. And uh, I, I just admire his um, optimism and the way he, he handled things. Um, and then uh, uh, the, the years right after the war were, were uh, very good years for us uh, in, in China. Um, uh, I went to the Shanghai American School, which was great fun. It was uh, housed in a... Uh, lovely uh, campus, uh, very much in the style of uh, colonial Williamsburg. Uh, great teachers, lots of fun. Uh, but my parents saw the future and uh, they applied for an immigration visa to the United States in 1946, which we uh, received in uh, 1948. We received the visa in September of 48. And in um, uh, December of that year, uh, we left China and uh, took a Pan Am plane, and it was a memorable journey. Uh, the first leg was to Tokyo. We had a, um, uh, and by the way, it was a propitious time to leave China because um, Mao um, came down and, and China went into communist hands um, in May, a few months um, later. So my, my parents had a very good sense of, of timing. Um, and so we, um, uh, we had a mechanical problem with our Pan Am flight and we uh, had an extra day in, in Tokyo. We're given a tour and uh, was under the uh, US military occupation. Douglas MacArthur was the commanding general. 
And uh, it was wonderful seeing Tokyo, even though it still had not fully recovered. And I remember seeing uh, Mount Fuji, uh, snow-capped Mount Fuji on this winter day, crisp day, uh, uh, resplendent, and uh, one of the really wonderful memories. And then that night we flew to Wake Island, which was a US Naval Station, and we arrived on the seventh anniversary of Pearl Harbor Day. And there was just a lot of shrapnel, munitions on the beach, a lot of evidence of World War II. From there, we went to Midway Island, also a US Naval Station. And there we were greeted by goonie birds, as they were called. These are black-footed albatrosses. And it was just wonderful seeing them. There's great wildlife uh, on Midway Island. Uh, I'd love to go there today as a tourist, as a photographer, but it's not possible to, uh, to just go there as a tourist. Um, and then the uh, next leg of our journey was from Midway to Honolulu. And that was our official entry into the United States, into territory Hawaii. Uh, we were uh, ushered by US immigration into a small conference room. And my uh, dad pulled out. Uh, we did not have passports. We just had a uh, just a one sheet of paper uh, that um, uh, was our travel document. And on the reverse side was the very precious visa, one for each of us, three sheets of paper. My dad uh, handed the three sheets of paper to the immigration officer, handed, uh, I believe it was $50, the entry tax for each of us. Uh, the officer stamped the visas, returned uh, the travel documents, to us and welcomed us to the United States. And uh, we were officially admitted and it, it was quite a feeling. It was a very, very emotional feeling. It was one of the um, great times in my life. Um, from there, we went to uh, San Francisco where uh, we were uh, greeted by my um, aunt and uncle. They were the ones who had been interned by the Japanese during uh, World War uh, II. And it was great. We, we had a few days in San Francisco and we saw the Redwoods and Fisherman's Wharf, uh, saw Berkeley, did not know yet about the existence of Stanford. And uh, it was a joyous experience. Uh, and then uh, we went to New York uh, where, um, uh, Soon after, we, uh, my parents decided to live in Forest Hills because it had uh, excellent schools. Uh, a few years later, I uh, entered Forest Hills High School and had the good fortune of uh, getting to know Paul Brandwine, who was the head of the science department, a wonderful educator. And uh, uh, Paul said to me, um, Louvert, I, I, I think you should really uh, do some scientific research. You should compete in the Westinghouse Science Talent Search, which I did. And uh, starting to do some research, I, I was hooked on it for life. And um, uh, it, it was just, um, just a wonderful high school experience. And uh, from there, I went to the University of Chicago and uh, received a uh, just a great uh, a combination of a great uh, scientific education and a great uh, humanistic uh, education. Um, I remember vividly uh, my uh, 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 freshman uh, humanities course, 
and going to the Art Institute of Chicago and you know seeing works by Giacometti uh, when we were talking about him in, in the course. And, uh, and, and then um, chemistry course taught by Harold Urey, a preeminent chemist who had discovered uh, deuterium. And uh, he was then interested in the uh, origin of life. He came over to our dorm and you know, talked about the, the very exciting experiments carried out by Stanley Miller in his lab uh, at that time. Uh, and, um, uh, and also I uh, started doing scientific research in Dan Harris's lab. And uh, one day uh, my uh, uh, counselor, uh, uh, who was keeping track of my education there, uh, said to me, you know, Luber, you, you've got, you've placed out of enough courses. Um, you, you can graduate in three years. Uh, and, um, and and so I, I think I, I made the mistake of uh, taking her up on that. I, I would have gained from a fourth undergraduate year, um, but I was a young man in a hurry. And, uh, and so uh, I applied uh, uh, to Harvard Medical School, I decided I, I wanted to uh, combine clinical practice with research. And um, I went to Harvard. And at this point, I'm going to turn to some slides. So shortly after arriving in medical school, I, I really found it very confining. We're in class all day, in contrast to the, uh, my undergraduate days at the University of Chicago. And by the way, um, I should say that I received not only a superb education at the University of Chicago, but my wife, Andrea and I found each other there. So that was probably the most important thing about what happened at the University of Chicago. Um, so I, there I was at Harvard Medical School and you know, taking anatomy, histology, microbiology, and classes and labs uh, essentially all day. And I, I was getting to be pretty unhappy. I was also away from Andrea for that year, which compounded the problem. And so before leaving Chicago, I've been given the name of uh, Sidney Farber. Farber, Dr. Farber uh, was a distinguished pediatric oncologist. And he was the director of the Children's Cancer Research Foundation. And the father, one of my friends at the University of Chicago said, you know, if you ever need anything at Harvard, uh, Sidney Farber is a friend of mine. Why don't you just give him a call and, and chat with him? And so I, um, I decided that was the thing to do. And, and I, I had uh, a lovely talk with Sidney Farber who wanted to know what I was interested in. And he put me in touch with Elkin Blout. Now, Elkin Blout by day was vice president of Polaroid. Uh, he was director of research there. And at the time he was working with Edwin Land on the development of color, instant color photography. But by night, he had a thriving lab at Children's Hospital that was centered on the question of the three-dimensional structure of proteins and he was uh, very much a, a biophysical chemist, a very talented, uh, creative organic chemist. And he was making synthetic polypeptides as models of proteins. And so I was put in touch with him and that was wonderful because 
Um, Elka not only gave me a research position in his lab, but it was the start of a lifetime friendship. And uh, while at Elkin's lab, I worked on uh, optical activity as a way of following the conformation of synthetic polypeptides. I was interested in the binding of dyes to polypeptides as models of the binding of um, molecules, substrates, uh, control molecules to proteins. And um, what I found is that symmetric dyes could become asymmetric on binding to a helical polypeptide. And so uh, my research with them uh, went well. And also um, I was enjoying my, my clinical years, uh, but I realized uh, at the start of my fourth year of medical school that a research life was very demanding, a clinical life was very demanding, and that I really could not combine the two. And so I decided that I, I would devote myself entirely to research. And so um, one day when I told Elkin Blatt about this, Elkin came in one evening, not one day, during a day he was, he was over uh, uh, with Edwin Land and Polaroid. One evening um, he said, Louis, I've been thinking about you and uh, I've arranged, for, you know, you really need to learn some physics, math and chemistry. And um, I've arranged for you to have a tutor at Harvard uh, Edward Purcell, uh, a very distinguished professor of physics, who was a co-discoverer of nuclear magnetic resonance. Felix Bloch at Stanford was the other discoverer of uh, NMR. He, uh, Purcell also made fundamental contributions in radio astronomy. He was a, just a great teacher. His book on electricity and magnetism is a, a super book. And um, he said, and then uh, you'll spend a year with, with Ed and I've told him about you and he's very willing to be your tutor. And uh, after that, uh, you're gonna go to uh, John Kendrew to the Medical Research Council Laboratory of Molecular Biology and uh, you're gonna do X-ray crystallography with John Kendrew. So this is very different from what postdoctoral fellows students experience today. They, they spend years, months agonizing. They apply to 25, 30 different places uh, it was very simple. Elkin just told me, this is what's going to happen. You're going to Ed Purcell and you're going to go to John Kendrew. Uh, how, how lovely to be treated in, in that way. And uh, I, I indeed had a, a wonderful year on the other side uh, of the Charles River um, with Ed Purcell. I, I received a Helen Hay Whitney Fellowship uh, that finally provided uh, a, a really decent living wage. It was a very attractive stipend and Andrea and I uh, lived well on it. Um, and I, I learned a lot that year and it was just wonderful. I, I never had a conversation with Ed Purcell that wasn't as long as, as two hours. So this is about once a week. And then I went to uh, the MRC lab, which was just, it was a great time at the lab. Um, the three-dimensional structure of uh, myoglobin was solved by John Kendrew, hemoglobin by Max Perutz. Uh, uh, Francis Crick was holding forth um, ebullient. Um, and then there was uh, Sidney Brenner and lots of bright, very energetic uh, fellows. And um, I uh, did crystallography with John and worked on the uh, three-dimensional 
structure uh, of uh, the, the azi derivative of myoglobin. And, um, uh, and, and uh, was able to see how three atoms, three nitrogen atoms bind to the iron atom uh, at the uh, uh, active site, at the uh, heme site uh, of myoglobin. Um, one day, uh, John saw me and he said, uh, I, I got a letter from um, Arthur Kornberg at, at Stanford. And um, Arthur wanted to know whether there's anyone um, I should I, I could recommend to him. They, there's an opening at Stanford. There's an assistant professorship opening. Uh, John said, would you like to be considered? And uh, I said, well, oh, sure, I, I'd love to be considered. And then a few weeks later, I uh, received uh, a letter from Arthur uh, inviting me to come to Stanford, give a job seminar, and meet the other members of the department, Paul Berg and Buzz Baldwin, and Bob Lehman, and Dale Kaiser, and, and Dave Hogness. And, uh, and it was a wonderful visit. And uh, Arthur, um, uh, at the end of the visit, uh, offered me a, uh, an assistant professorship. And the offer letter was, you know, it was on the Stanford note paper. It was kind of on a piece of paper like this. And it just had two paragraphs. And the first just gave the formality of the title of the position. And the second is, um, when you come here, we'll, we'll take care of you. And um, we, we welcome you. And uh, I accepted very soon thereafter. And, uh, and so after spending a, a little over a year uh, in Cambridge, England, uh, came to this wonderfully uh, supportive department. And uh, not only the group here, the, the six here, but George Stark uh, was an, also joined the department as an assistant professor. So I had the benefit of uh, interactions with George. And then um, I interacted with um, Joshua Lederberg in genetics. He opened up his, um, his instrumentation laboratory to me. And, uh, and then uh, uh, also I met the Hertzenbergs, Lee, Len, and Lee, and learned some immunology from them. Uh, and then I interacted with um, John Baldeschwiller and Hartman McConnell in the chemistry department. So it was a very rich, um, a very rich environment. After having done some crystallography at, uh, in Cambridge, where I saw that it was possible to get a magnificently detailed three-dimensional structure of a technique with great power. I decided to do something different at Stanford. I decided what was needed was ways of looking at protein molecules um, that were not crystalline, that were in solution, that were dynamic, that were doing their interactions. And I chose fluorescent spectroscopy because of its sensitivity and because it, uh, fluorescence molecules can be highly informative. So fluorescence occurs with some molecules. You excite them with light of one wavelength. They emit light of a different wavelength, uh, a wavelength shifted uh, to the red. The excited state of a fluorescent molecule lasts for about a billionth of a second. And in that time, it can sense its environment and provide information. For example, uh, here are four cuvettes, and we've got um, 
the same fluorescent molecule, but they're in four different solvents here in water and then in, uh, in uh, uh, ethanol and then in less polar solvents. And what you can see here is that the intensity of fluorescence increases as the fluorescent molecule is placed in a nonpolar, towards a nonpolar solvent. So here is a probe of the local polarity of the environment. Now, uh, what also grabbed me about fluorescence was the existence of fluorescence excitation energy transfer. And um, uh, this was discovered by Cario and uh, his mentor, James Franck, in 1923. I had the privilege of meeting James Franck while I was an undergraduate at the University of Chicago. I was a, in the evenings, I was a waiter at the faculty club, at the Quadrangle Club at the University of Chicago. And James Franck, who was an emeritus professor of chemistry, a very distinguished professor who had won the Nobel Prize in 1925 for carrying out spectroscopic studies that essentially validated Bohr's model of the atom. Uh, Frank left Germany in 1933. He saw what was coming and uh, ended up on the faculty of the University of Chicago. And so um, Frank would order a lean veal sandwich every night. And uh, so um, it was very easy to take his order. And so we had time and he, 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 was, he asked me, um, well, well, tell me about your chemistry course. What are you learning there? And so we, we got into conversations and then he started telling me about his interest in energy transfer and how he had discovered it with a student, uh, Gunter Ocario. And the, their experiment was that they had two atoms. They had mercury and thallium, a mixture, a gaseous mixture, and they excited mercury. And what they saw was the fluorescence coming out, not of mercury, but of thallium. And uh, what fluorescence energy transfer requires is to have a prospective energy donor and acceptor that are in tune. The energy levels have to match to some degree. And so you can tell that by looking at the overlap of the fluorescence uh, emission spectrum of the donor and the, uh, the absorption uh, spectrum of the acceptor. And if they uh, partially overlap, that means that they have uh, common energy uh, levels. Uh, now, there was a beautifully worked out theory for this kind of energy transfer by an extraordinary German uh, quantum chemist named Theodor Furster, who I met uh, uh, when I was doing research at Argonne National Laboratory and met him at a, a symposium at Brookhaven Lab. And he had developed a theory of energy transfer that gave an explicit expression for the rate and efficiency of transfer. And what grabbed me was Furster's prediction of a very steep dependence of energy transfer on the distance between the donor and acceptor. And, um, uh, and, and so uh, he um, predicted that there'd be an inverse sixth power dependence. And so this was very much on my mind uh, when I heard about this. And my dream was to be able to experimentally test this. So the, the conceptually experiment is very simple. You have a donor, you have an acceptor, 
And you need to separate them by a series of sticks, of rigid sticks uh, that are at different known distances. Um, and my dream was to have a series of, uh, to, to put a helical synthetic polypeptide, a short helical synthetic, synthetic polypeptide between them, because that's what I learned about when I was a medical student in Elkin's lab. Now, the actual realization of this experiment had to wait until I was a faculty member because making these stepwise, making one through 12 separators was not a trivial uh, task. And what opened up was uh, Bruce Merrifield at the Rockefeller University devised a, a brilliant method of solid phase chemical synthesis that made it possible for people who were not spending their entire life on synthetic organic chemistry to do that. And so um, I made these oligomers of polyproline. This is the kind of helix that we have in collagen in uh, the major fibrous protein of our fibrous tissue. And um, uh, at that point I was joined uh, by a wonderful graduate student, Dick Hoagland. And we uh, made these oligomers uh, starting from one proline to 12 prolines in between, measured the transfer efficiency and explicitly determined what it was. And it turned out to be, this is a fit to a inverse sixth power dependence. And it turned out that it, it was to uh, our experimental observation was to the fi uh, uh, minus 5.9 power plus or minus experimental error of uh, 0 0.3. Uh, and so uh, Dick uh, Hoagland and I uh, uh, entitled our paper, Energy Transfer as Spectroscopic Ruler. Since the transfer has been shown here to depend on the inverse sixth power of the distance between the chromophores, it seems likely that the energy transfer process can serve as a spectroscopic ruler. A particularly interesting possibility is that energy donor acceptor pairs might be used to reveal proximity relationships in biological macromolecules. And as Peter indicated in his uh, uh, introduction, um, that, that is what was happened. Um, I, I just checked the other night on um, how many papers have used uh, fluorescence energy transfer. Uh, it, it's above 12,000 scientific papers and great ingenuity has been put into the process. And what has, what started as a physical principle has been tr tr transformed by the work of many into a uh, biological discovery method. And it's a great way of looking at biological interactions of looking at changes at the molecular uh, scale. So th that was uh, very satisfying. Now I'm gonna turn now to the, the second story and I, I'm gonna give a very condensed uh, account of it. Um, and uh, the motivation for my work on molecular basis of vision came from my teaching of biochemistry. And, uh, and here's an excerpt from my lecture notes of my 1966 lecture uh, on vision and bioluminescence. Um, and uh, I start the lecture by indicating where life is involved in biochemistry. 
And then um, I talk about the action of light. And uh, on, uh, it was known that the, there was a photoreceptor protein, rhodopsin, in our retinal rod cells. And the beautiful work of George Wald and Ruth Hubbard uh, uh, and Alan Krupp established that light leads to a change in geometry of the retinal chromophore. This is the chromophore that is derived from vitamin A. So carotene gives rise to vitamin A, gives rise to retinal. And in the dark, it's, it's, uh, it's a bent conformation. And what light does is it straightens it out. And there's a change of about seven angstroms. And then I go on and, and tell the students that the crucial step is cis-trans isomerization, not some other things. And then I indicate, well, well, what does this have to do with visual excitation? And I come out with a blunt statement, coupling to nervous excitation, unknown. And I remember stating this. And at that moment, this just grabbed me. And I said, you know, this is a wonderful problem to work on. And, uh, and, and so I um, decided that I'd work on, on vision. And uh, at that point, I was in my sixth year at Stanford. I was, a, I was an associate professor. Uh, and I, I needed to have more space. I needed to have dark rooms. I was chomping at the bit, uh, as I said before, uh, eager to uh, move forward. Yale made a very attractive offer to me of a full professorship and uh, lots of space, and uh, I, I went to Yale. Uh, and that was in um, 1969. And uh, so I um, am um, running out of time, so I'm going to condense my presentation. So this is what, what we do. Walden Hubbard and uh, Alan Knopf, uh, cis-trans isomerization in the retinal chromophore. So, we have two, two classes of photoreceptors. The rod cells are our dim light receptors. The cone cells are our bright light receptors. And the cone cells, uh, called because of their shape, uh, also mediate color vision. They're the, the cells that are responsible for fast motion detection. But our rods are the exquisitely sensitive receptors that we use for night vision. And it was also known from the work of uh, uh, Tsuneo uh, Tomita, a gifted Japanese electrophysiologist, that what light does is to make the inside of rod cells more negative. It hyperpolarizes them uh, in contrast to the excitation of most neurons where it goes the other way. And then the beautiful work of Dennis Baylor, my good friend and colleague at Stanford, uh, and Baylor and uh, Lam and Yao uh, uh, showed that uh, a single photon blocks the influx of 10 million sodium ions. So the question is, how does the excitation of a single rhodopsin molecule lead to a highly amplified nerve signal? And so after working on this question for a number of years, and we're, we're nibbling at it, and you know, doing some worthwhile things, but really had no idea how an amplified signal was generated. But suddenly five clues came together in 1970, uh, uh, let me just think, the, uh, in 1979. Now, at this point, 
I had come back to Stanford uh, and uh, Yale was very good to me. Uh, I started my textbook of biochemistry, the writing of it there. Uh, Andrea and I gained, and our kids gained uh, uh, so much from uh, being at Yale, but we felt we were Westerners and Stanford really felt like home. And um, when the opportunity came and Paul Berg played a major role in this, uh, uh, I was brought back to Stanford to start a department of um, uh, structural biology. And uh, I, um, uh, department got off to a strong start with, I appointed uh, Jim Spudich, uh, Roger Kornberg, uh, Nigel Unwin, and others came on board. I was chairman for three years. Uh, it was not something that I loved. I, I really wanted to work on vision. I really wanted to work on uh, the second edition of my textbook of biochemistry. And so I relinquished the chairmanship after three years. And so in 79, um, suddenly a, a series of clues uh, came together. And what, and I'm gonna describe this in, in human terms rather than talk about the scientific clues. So well, the first clue was that rods are rich in cyclic GMP, which was known to be a, to be, a, 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 to be possibly a messenger molecule. Uh, it's a cousin of cyclic AMP, which was known to be a messenger in, uh, uh, in, in hormone-sensitive cells. Then I went to a Gordon Research uh, Conference in New Hampshire and got two key clues from the studies of Paul Lehman, very important studies he carried out showing that light activates an enzyme that destroys cyclic G and that GTP is needed. So here was key clues coming from a direct personal interaction with, science, with Paul and scientists in his group. And then we returned to New Haven and uh, to see family. And um, we stayed that night uh, with Bill and Irene Miller. And after a delightful dinner, Bill, who's an electrophysiologist, uh, pulled out his tracings of what he had done those days. And the key experiment he had carried out, which he told me about after a delightful dinner and uh, over some brandy, was that injecting cyclic GMP into a rod is like injecting darkness. And the fifth uh, clue was reported in a paper by Castle and Selinger, uh, and it was about hormone action, not about vision. And I came across their paper because I was writing the second edition of my textbook of biochemistry. And here I was, I was learning something that turned out to be really crucial for unraveling the story and vision uh, because there was a analogous homologous process occurring in a hormone sensitive cell. So um, we discovered a, came back to Stanford and um, Bernard Fung, a uh, very talented postdoc in my lab told him about it. And we we're able to design an experiment that, that just hit gold on, on the very first experiment because we had these clues. And also Bernard had golden hands. Um, and we discovered a protein that 
was in the inactive state, a GDP state in the dark, it was activated by photoexcited rhodopsin. And most important, 500 molecules of transducin in the active state were generated. So we had the first stage of amplification. And I'm gonna go right to, I'm gonna skip this slide and go right to the scheme that shows what we had learned. So in the dark, we have rhodopsin, the photoreceptor protein, and it's not interacting with anything. There's transducin, it's in the inactive GDP state. And there's the phosphodiesterase enzyme that's held in check by two of its inhibitory subunits. And the action of light is to change the conformation of rhodopsin, and then it grabs onto transducin and activates, trans, leads to the activation of transducin, the subunits of transducin fly apart. And one of the subunits of transducin goes over to the phosphodiesterase, plucks off the inhibitory subunit, and now we have an enzyme that has enormous catalytic power. And so this is where the enormous amplification comes from the production of 500 or so molecules of transducin, activated transducin, and then the generation of the phosphodiesterase. And William Rushton, an English electrophysiologist, uh, vividly wrote, molecules respond to light as do, people to, uh, as do people to music. Some absorb nothing. Others respond by the degraded vibration of foot or finger, but some there are who rise and dance and change partners. And here we see the underlying dance of, and change of partners that is at the heart of the first stage of vision. We worked out this first stage of amplification and the second stage, and others worked out other parts of the story. And so we put together and had a, us and our lab and others uh, put together a very satisfying story of how vision begins, how a single photon generates a signal at the uh, plasma membrane of the retinal rod cell that's conveyed to the synapse. A final part of the story was, is the opening of channels by cyclic GMP fast enough to account for vision? And there, uh, my lab collaborated with uh, Dennis Baylor's, here's Dennis, uh, Anita Zimmerman, one of uh, his postdoctoral fellows, Jeff Carpen, uh, was doing the uh, laser photolysis that showed that it was uh, fast enough. Um, and uh, it was a, just a, a wonderful collaboration, fun collaboration. And here we are uh, feeling a bit high after the experiment uh, worked. So uh, in a few words, my textbook of biochemistry. The first edition was written at Yale and uh, came out in 1975. And what happened at Yale is, so at Stanford, I was one of eight who taught in the um, biochemistry course, Biochemistry 201. And um, I, I, not only had I the privilege of giving these lectures, but I learned so much 
observing the other members of the department. And I should say that, that Arthur Kornberg went to every lecture. And after a lecture, uh, he would say, uh, he would you know, tell me what he thought were the high points and what could be improved about my lecture. And one of my lectures, um, I, was, I was hurried uh, and uh, I, I was rushed and I, I just had to go over stuff very, very quickly. And Arthur said to me, you know, you don't have to do that. So I'm going to take his advice and, uh, and uh, uh, make this very crisp. He said, you don't have to tell everything. Just, you know, tell what you have time for. Uh, so thank you, Arthur. I um, taught, I was in charge of the biochemistry course at Yale. I taught half of it. And um, in doing so, I produced lecture notes for the students and um, publishers heard about this and they, they said, you know, um, it'll be easy for you to uh, take those notes and convert it into a book. Well, they were, they're liars. Uh, but fortunately, they, they told me this lie. And, uh, and so I, I started writing a book and I wanted to write something that was different. I wanted first to put confirmation, three-dimensional structure on, on center stage. And the second is I wanted to bring in molecular physiology. Now, this was the closing part of the biochemistry course at Stanford. What are the unsolved problems? How does information, confirmation, metabolism come together? And I wanted a book that was rich in visual imagery. I feel that this is the way that I'm able to teach. And, um, uh, and, and so uh, let me just go back here. I found a publisher, W.H. Uh, Freeman. They're part of Scientific American and they were very attuned to the generation of uh, really attractive uh, visual uh, books. And they were willing to give me a five color book. And they were very much supported in this by uh, uh, Scientific American who, who owned them. And over the next uh, 25 years, I wrote four editions of my bi biochemistry book. And, uh, which was a wonderful, uh, rewarding experience. And in the fourth edition, uh, I said, this is a wonderful time in biochemistry, recombinant DNA technology, protein chemistry, and structural biology have come together to reveal the molecular mechanisms of fundamental biological processes. Many of our dreams of only a few years ago have been fulfilled. And um, to have seen, to have been there in this wonderful time and to have expressed some of it in a textbook to share it with students uh, was a great privilege. After the fourth edition, I turned the baton over to Jeremy Berg, who was responsible for the uh, five subsequent editions that have occurred. Jeremy was an undergraduate at Stanford. Uh, at the time that I turned the baton to him, he was a professor uh, at uh, Johns Hopkins, uh, and Jeremy had done undergraduate uh, research in my lab, and uh, he carried forth with the book. Uh, also, I um, 
before I turn to my a few slides about my uh, life and adventure travel, I just wanted to say that uh, a day before my 66th birthday, uh, I went emeritus. I did it for two reasons. One is I was so grateful to all who had retired at age 65 before, because that's what gave me the opportunities. That's what gave me the professorship at a young age. And it was my obligation to the younger generation to give to them what I had been given. And second, I'd been running hard and the time had come to to have some fun, to um, control my own calendar. And so Andrew and I uh, had some wonderful adventure travel. I'm gonna show you a few slides from that. But I do wanna say that I also had the good fortune of being able to continue to mentor students and faculty, which I do to this day in my role, first at the Howard Hughes Medical Institute where I was on the medical advisory board and then uh, I uh, served on the board of the McKnight Endowment uh, for Neuroscience. And since its inception five years ago, its founding by uh, Steve Quake at Stanford and Joe DeRisi uh, uh, at UCSF, the Chan Zuckerberg uh, Biohub, which is dedicated to enhancing interactions uh, between faculty at the three campuses. Uh, Berkeley, Stanford, uh, and UCSF, and to uh, encouraging faculty to do some, some gutsy research. So turning to uh, adventure travel, we've been in Antarctica and uh, here as a neurobiologist, I can take great delight in seeing uh, release behavior in, in action. Uh, here's a young um, uh, penguin chick tapping on the beak of one of its parents. It could be its mother or father. And that leads to the regurgitation of food that was recently uh, ingested and uh, partially digested uh, by the parent. Uh, and then here are the wonderful uh, blue-footed uh, boobies in um, uh, the Galapagos. And, and uh, here's where uh, my fascination with color comes in. Uh, boobies carefully scrutinize uh, the feet of their prospective mate. And they obtain two kinds of information in doing that. Uh, uh, birds like boobies have uh, another dimension of color vision beyond what we have. They all have ultraviolet receptors. So they're able to see more into the ultraviolet and they're able to tell two kinds of blue color, a structural blue that arises from the collagen fibers so they can assess how good is the connective tissue of this perspective made? And they also see the carotenoids that have recently been eaten. And that's the blue color that we see. It's a pigmentary color. And so, you know, is this a well-nourished uh, perspective mate? And so uh, a wonderful example of how color is used to assess uh, the well-being of a perspective mate. Uh, here on a night walk in Costa Rica uh, with a UV flashlight, and it's really fun to take a flashlight on a night walk, uh, we see uh, the fluorescence of a scorpion. And here's in the Virunga Mountains of uh, 
the, uh, of Rwanda. You see this uh, wonderful, uh, incredible gorilla enjoying some ripe fruit. And this gorilla is literally enjoying the fruits of trichromacy. So most mammals are dichromats. They have two channels of color vision. But gorilla and other uh, old world uh, monkeys, primates, and we have three colors. And here in this photo, it captures the benefit of that acquisition, of that evolutionary acquisition. And it's something that um, was, you know, first uh, uh, Dennis Baylor measured the absorption spectrum, the action spectrum of this third pigment. Uh, Jeremy Nathans, an MD PhD student at Stanford, uh, was the one who cloned the genes for rhodopsin and for the three color vision pigments. And so there was a special meaning in seeing this because the ties to molecular evolution, the ties to the research of people whom I admire uh, was um, just so evident. So uh, I just like to close by saying how grateful I am to my um, students, to my postdoctoral fellows, to um, uh, faculty for having uh, created such an incredible environment, for having shared with me so many wonderful research explorations. And um, it's just incredible to, to have you know, been together with these, with these people. I am very grateful to Yale and Stanford for providing me with exceptional opportunities. I am very, very thankful to this country for welcoming me as an immigrant when I was 10 years old and for providing boundless opportunities uh, in the years after. And to my wife, Andrea, for her devoted support for her wise counsel and love over more than 60 years. And thank you so much for joining uh, this uh, webinar and for uh, giving me the privilege of uh, sharing um, some of the adventures of my life. And Lubert, we are so grateful to you for sharing your life and your light with all of us. It was really incredibly moving and very stimulating. And we thank you for this memorable presentation. And now I know that a number of people in our very large audience uh, will want to ask you some questions. And I hope that's okay with you. Oh, certainly. Okay, and the way to do it for this webinar is for you to post them in the Q&A, and I will monitor that with Susan Schofield's help. So please uh, let us know what you would like to ask our distinguished speaker. Let me say in the meanwhile that... Um... I wish we could be doing this over wine at the faculty club. <laughs> <laughs> Don't we all? 
And hopefully our next- Hopefully next time, right? It will be that, right. Well, there is the first question is from our own Michelle Marinkovich. Oh, Michelle. Hi, Michelle. (laughs) And she says, and we all will agree, uh, you make an eloquent argument for retiring at 65, but many faculty are concerned about the quality of life after retirement. What have you experienced or observed in your own peers? Thanks, Michelle. Well, let me see. Uh, I, I, I would say that the quality of life has, has been great. That, you know, after being 40 years in the professoriat and um, uh, having a very intense experience, it's good to have, have the gift of time. Time is a great gift. And to do things, you know, I, I didn't read, I almost didn't read any fiction while I was a faculty member. I was too busy, you know, doing research. I now have time to read, to read some fiction. And so, you know, for example, um, uh, you know, reading George Eliot, reading Middlemarch, uh, just, just uh, reading Daniel Deronda, it, it's just great. And reading some Dickens and doing things and so, and at the same time, mentoring students and mentoring faculty and encouraging them to do gutsy research. So my advice is, you know, to, to students and to faculty, you know, half of your research program should be where you feel reasonably secure. But the other half is where you, where you go for the home runs and, and where you swing for the fences and do it in a very deliberate way, but do it. You have only one chance to do it. And so I really encourage that. And, and there are so many things that Emeriti can do. I, I remember uh, Donald Knuth, we, we had a discussion and, uh, and uh, I, you know, I asked him before I retired, I think, I asked him why he went Emeritus. And he said, it's because I have so much to do. The only way I can do it is to go emeritus. And uh, Don Cruz, great example. Well, we're waiting for other questions. Uh, your comment uh, stimulates me to ask uh, whether you have suggestions now that the uh, faculty has grown so large and the campus has remained more or less the same size and it's no longer possible for the emeriti to be uh, on campus in offices and gathering together. And we feel in the council that it's a great loss to the younger faculty who could benefit so much from daily, if not regular uh, interaction with you and other emeriti. Um, what, What ideas do you have about how that might be uh, rectified. Right. Iris, you, you raise a very important point. I've been very fortunate. Um, the Department of Neurobiology has enabled me to keep an office uh, in the department. And that makes a huge difference. Now, if the university wants faculty to retire at a younger age, they have to provide the setting in which one, these faculty members can contribute to the university. We have a compact 
between generations. Now, and I think departments can gain enormously with that. Now, uh, you know, an alternative, if space is very scarce, is to create space for emeriti elsewhere. But what's, I think what's much better is to keep emeriti in their organic setting where they are part of the department, they provide a, a certain perspective. And so that's very important. And, and so they can make way. Now, the, the, the right model for this, I think, is our federal judiciary. The number of slots, of federal judiciary slots is controlled by statute. A federal judge, uh, after having served a number of years, can take what's called senior status. They are still a federal judge, but they do not occupy a slot, like a tenure slot. I mean, in essence, a federal judgeship is a tenure slot. They do not occupy that slot, but at the discretion of the chief judge of their district or of the appeals court, they, they can serve. And so some of them serve half time, they maintain their offices, they are part of a very collegial group. And that is the kind of model of where we maintain a vigorous, rigorous professoriate and where we have the benefit of their years of experience. Well, thank you. And to be continued, we really very much value your your thoughts about this and your suggestions. Uh, there is a comment uh, from Rona Gifford who describes herself yeah. as a guest who you obviously know. <laughs> I know Rona. <laughs> she says, you have an amazing life story. Have you thought about writing it up for all of your admirers? <laughs> uh, no comment. <laughs> no. Um, I'm very happy. I, you know, I really want to go with, I want to go with Andrea to Baffin Island and, and see the narwhals. You know, mm. and, and we have, we have some ambitions for adventure travel and no, um, writing another book is not on my agenda, but, but thank you, Rona. And thank you for, for participating in this. It's been a good number of years since you were in Jim Spudich's lab and, uh, and I had uh, the good fortune of seeing you uh, uh, get into research. Well, and we have a comment from Catherine Kim, who says, remember that writing things up after you have the notes is very easy, exclamation <laughs> point. <laughs> okay. Well, somebody who apparently came late asked, how did you come to be born in China, which you, I think you answered. I guess my question uh, as a follow-up would be, how did, why did your mother wind up in China? We heard about your father's business, but. Yeah, so my, my mother um, came from an area of Russia that is uh, today in, in the Ukraine. Um, and um, her, her dad was um, an administrator on one of the estates of uh, one of the Radsvilles. And, uh, but you know, life in, um, 
in that area was, was tricky. Um, there were good times and, and there were pogroms. And uh, whereas um, Harbin was uh, in 1915, a good place to be. It had a thriving cultural life. It had opera. It had, um, you know, uh, in a few years after that, uh, people of different ethnicities got along quite well with each other. The czar actually encouraged Jews to uh, to move to uh, the uh, Russian sphere of influence uh, in in uh, far eastern China with the Trans-Siberian Railroad and the commercial interests there. And so it was very much to get away from a place where um, things were could turn sour at any time, and they did. And so I, I think my um, mother's parents were very astute, very prescient. It was a great move. Lubert, this is Susan. Hi, Susan. Schofield. Um, you, you highlighted the... Uh, incredible number of different collaborations you were able to have um, through your through your undergraduate and graduate period, and then once you became a professor. I, I'm wondering if if you one says that Stanford is a place um, that is much more interdisciplinary than others, but I wonder if you see that as a reality or if you experienced it in other places equally? Yeah, thank you, Susan, for the, the question. Uh, and, and you hit on something very important. One of my reasons for returning to Stanford was the ease of collaboration at Stanford. Yale was just great. I mean, Yale College was just terrific. And, you know, um, Morse College with Vince Scully, an art historian, and there was so many good things about Yale but it was not where you could just walk over and, and just knock on someone's door, like, you know, you know, getting together with Hardin McConnell or John Baldeschwiller, and then later with Tony Siegman, electrical engineering, and, and, and just, um, just initiate a, a collaboration and have graduate students. I mean, I, I've had electrical engineering students, applied physics students, chemistry students in my lab at Stanford, and, and that kind of thing is very, very strong at Stanford. And I think is just immensely appealing and continues to this day. Mm -hmm. What do you think causes it? Do you think it's just the um, immediacy, the proximity of all these different departments to each other? It's not a medical school way across the river or whatever, yes, or is it, it something in the mindset? I, I think there, there are two things. One is, is the geography that the, uh, but but the other is that there's been a just a tradition from you know very early and uh, just uh, and it's it's in the air. It's like you know we, we didn't get a chance to talk about entrepreneurship, but it's just that that so many wonderful companies have arisen here. You know, uh, starting with Hewlett and Packard. You know, and uh, it's very much in the air. And it, it's something intangible, but it's very much promoted, furthered by our policies in regard to uh, graduate students and you know supervising your graduate students. Uh, it, it just makes it uh, a lot easier to have these collaborations. 
There is a question from an anonymous attendee. How do you feel about Stanford clinician educators uh, being approved to be principal investigators on sponsored grants? Is that something that you want to comment on? Yeah, I think what counts, yes, I, so let me just say that where I had some input was Biohub. And Biohub, in the most recent competition, opened it up to people who were in the medical center line and and also opened it up to uh, uh, people who were uh, clinicians uh, who did not have graduate students uh, in, in their lab. And so I think there is a tremendous amount to be gained by people who have clinical experience, who see, who see problems that require solutions. And so I'm all for it. Great, thank you. David Silberman asks, what advice do you have for the grandparent of a grandchild who as a high school sophomore is expressing a significant interest in biologic research? Well, the first is, um, if there's a way to have your grandchild uh, get into research, uh, that's the way to do it. And, and we're, you know, it's not hanging, just hanging around a computer and doing things on the web. You know, it, it's, it's doing things with your hands, you know, putting together instruments. It's looking at field biology on um, there are great opportunities in field biology. It's really um, getting into things. So first is uh, get them hooked. You know, uh, Tom Lehrer should have written, uh, uh, should have had a song about getting hooked on research. Uh, <laughs> it, it, it would have been a lot of fun. Uh, but I think that, that that's point one. But I would say, that I hope you also get them hooked onto reading classic literature. If there's one thing I regret is that, yes, in, in high school, I, I read some novels, but you know, it was Silas Marner and it wasn't Middle March or Daniel Deronda. And I think kids need to acquire emotional intelligence. And a great way to do that is by reading fiction. And so I've, I've come to it lately. I'm, I'm doing that now. But I think I would have been a more effective scientist, a better uh, mentor, if I had read more fiction early. Lubert, your love of color and your uh, ability to see things where some, many don't, have you ever uh, done any uh, of the visual arts? No, you know, I, I cannot, I cannot draw. And I love art. And Andrew and I, we spent a lot of time going to museums. And we're hoping to go to the Morozov exhibit at the Vuitton in Paris. Um, it's a great exhibit of impressionist art. And, and I love, I love art. I love going to museums. And one of my side projects uh, of the past few years what um, was getting into a little bit of machine learning 
and uh, trying to get a program that would take a training set of works of art and see if it could identify uh, the artist. But the really interesting thing was that the mistakes the program made, because they were not random errors, the mistakes established kinship. So the mistakes showed the kinship of, say, Goya and Manet. And uh, that was very interesting. So I wish I could sketch, but my way of um, doing that is through photography. Ah, great. Well, I'm going to have to introduce you to glass art because you don't have to draw it to <laughs> enjoy color. That'll be another conversation. Okay. Well, it's just been marvelous spending the afternoon with you. It's so exciting to hear what you have done and imagine what the future will bring for you and your students and your family. Um, so thank you so thank much you. for giving this lecture for us. Thank you very much.